It's time for Lawyers for Jesus, a show about the dynamic and exciting interaction of faith and the law. Featuring the attorneys from the law firm Malkin Baker in downtown Chicago. Malkin Baker is nationally known for defending freedom and for serving the people of faith. And now, Lawyers for Jesus. Hello, welcome to Lawyers for Jesus Radio. I'm Whit Brisky, an attorney and partner at the law firm of Malk and Baker in Chicago. We are Christian attorneys who focus on serving the body of Christ with its legal needs. To learn more about us, go to malkbaker.com, that's M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R.com, or call 312-726-1243. What does it mean to truly forgive someone? and fight for their redemption, even the murderer of a loved one. Today, I'll be speaking with Jean Bishop, an assistant public defender in Chicago and a prominent advocate for criminal justice reform and gun violence prevention, two issues that have become forever personal to her when her sister Nancy was murdered with her husband and unborn child. Jean's book, Change of Heart, Justice, Mercy, and Making Peace with My Sister's Killer is a powerful true story of faith, forgiveness, and action. Jean, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me. Jean, would you tell me a little bit about uh, the story of the book for those who don't know? Um, 28 years ago, April 7th, 1990, the night before Palm Sunday, my younger sister Nancy, who was 25 years old and three months pregnant, and her husband, Richard, age 29, um, were murdered in their own home. And it turned out to be a teenager, a 16-year-old boy who lived only a few blocks away. And uh, how did you react to that? Well, I was in shock. I mean, it was the happiest moment in my family's life because Nancy was the first of us three girls. I'm one of three sisters. And she was the first of us that was going to be a mom. And we were all over the moon with happiness. And to have that joy turn into tragedy so suddenly and senselessly was shocking. And uh, were you angry? I was angry at God, really, not so much the person who did it. I get that we have free will, that we are sinners and that we choose to do evil. What I couldn't understand is how, you know, where God was when Nancy walked through the door of her home and saw a 357 Magnum revolver pointing at her. And later on, we found out that Nancy in her last moments had dragged herself over to her husband's body and drawn in her own blood the shape of a heart and the letter U, love you. And that was when I realized that God was right there with her, right there with her baby, with her husband, as they were dying, surrounding them with, with love and weeping. Were you a believer at that time? Yes. Oh, yeah, I have been, you know, since childhood. And why did you feel the need to write the book, Change of Heart? Because I wanted to tell this one story because people so often say, well, all victims want the harshest possible punishment. All victims need, you know, vengeance and retribution. And I knew that not to be so and and so inconsistent with what Christ teaches me. And I wanted it to be just that one testimony. All right. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about your journey, I guess, from this anger to uh, being in a position where you can forgive? I started out not knowing who had done it. We didn't know for six months who the killer was. And when I found out that Nancy and Richard had been shot to death, 
the very first thing out of my mouth when I was sitting there in the Winnetka police station and, and learned that was, I don't want to hate anyone. And so I knew that I didn't want to carry the burden of hatred toward whoever had done this, that this act was so dark and so evil that it could cast its shadow over me forever and drag me into this endless ocean of hate. And I didn't want that, that to happen. Once this young man was arrested, he was remorseless. He tried to deny responsibility. And so I forgave him in my own mind and heart, but I didn't forgive him directly face to face. I figured he didn't ask for it. He didn't deserve it. And I was just going to unchain myself from him really and do that for God and for Nancy and and for me. Well, for you, it seemed like this was sort of a natural thing, but you know, for other people, it may be very difficult to forgive the person who has injured you. Right. It is because your natural sense of, of justice is that, you know, this person has done wrong and, and therefore, you know, they should be punished rather than kind of let off the hook. My dad, before he died, taught the confirmation class at Kenilworth Union Church to the seventh and eighth graders. And after he died, when we were cleaning out an old cabinet of his, found the notes from that conversation that he had. And he said that forgiveness has, has two parts. And the first part is the letting go the letting go of your justifiable anger over the wrong someone's done. But the second part is the letting in, the letting back into relationship of that person who wronged you. And that's what I didn't do in my initial forgiveness. My change of heart was not just to say, I forgive you and now I'm wiping my hands of you. It was, I forgive you and now I'm going to reach out to you and try to reconcile with you. You're listening to Lawyers for Jesus Radio. I'm Whit Brisky of the law firm of Malkin Baker. If you missed part of this episode or want to hear other Lawyers for Jesus interviews, visit MalkBaker.com. You can also subscribe to our Religious Liberty newsletter and follow us on Facebook and Twitter for legal updates with a biblical perspective. Today, we have been speaking with Jean Bishop, author of Change of Heart, about how uh, she can forgive those who have wronged her. Uh, What influence did your faith have in this whole process? Oh, my faith led me, you know, entirely through this process. I, the sub, somebody joked that a subtitle of my book could be Four Pastors because the first pastor I went to was in the week after Nancy was murdered, John Buchanan, the former pastor of Fourth Presbyterian Church, where I attend and where I sing in the choir still. Um, I went to him and I said, John, I'm playing this horror movie over and over in my head of my sister walking through the door and seeing the gun pointed and hearing her go off and seeing her husband slump to the floor. And he said, this is too much for you. You're holding on to it and gripping it with tight fists. You need to open your hands, lift up this tragedy to God and say, take this. It is too heavy for me to bear. Do something with this. Redeem it. And I had no idea then how powerfully God would fulfill that that prayer and that promise. And uh, you mentioned that the second part of the forgiveness is the reconciliation. And, uh, you know, we are given the ministry of reconciliation. Can you tell me a little bit about how that worked for you? Well, I was talking to a law professor who is a very faithful Christian and a a professor at a uh, Catholic law school in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's Mark Osler of St. Thomas. And I was talking to him, you know, decades after the murders and thinking about reaching out to the young man who killed Nancy and Richard. And I said, though, you know, I mean, but but he's still remorseless. You know, I don't know, you know, and, and he said, you don't know that. He said, how do you know that? You've, you've never even spoken to him. 
And I realized, you know, that really convicted me and he was right. And so I wrote this letter to the young man who killed Nancy and Richard and said, I forgave you a long time ago. And I told everyone in the world, but you, and that was wrong. And I'm sorry. And I've waited all these years for you to apologize to me and my family. I'm going to go first. I'm sorry. And if you want me to visit you, I will. And that's when he wrote back this 15 page letter front and back saying, I did kill your sister and her husband, and I am so sorry. I regret it so deeply and traced his own journey, his own change of heart and trajectory of going from denying the crime to feeling great shame and anguish over it. Well, when you when you were able to reconcile, when you were able to forgive, what were the benefits to you? Oh, so many. I mean, somebody asked me once, what does it feel like to go and visit your sister's killer in prison? And I said, it feels like green shoots springing up out of the ground, out of earth that used to be hard and frozen where nothing could grow, that God turns it into this tender, fertile you know, um, ground out of which the love and compassion of, of Christ can, can grow and be evident to the world. I mean, what's really interesting to me is by now, the other prisoners have figured out who I am, and they're astonished. The guards have figured out who I am, and they have come to ask me about it. And I get to to witness to the faith that led me to this. And it's really a it's really a lifting of a burden because when you're carrying this anger, this un unresolved anger, it really burdens you yourself. And so it may be that the person has wronged you is gone on. I mean, maybe this, not this young man, obviously he's still living there, but uh, in a more uh, common situation, the person who's wronged you has moved on and you're the one who's, who's being uh, held up by the anger and the unforgiveness. That's so true. One of the saddest days of my life was testifying at a clemency hearing in a death penalty matter. And the sister of one of the murder victims stood up shaking with rage and said, that she wakes up every day wanting to know why her brother's killers were still breathing and that, you know, she can't even say the Lord's Prayer anymore because it has the part about forgiving others as we've been forgiven. And when she sat down, my heart just broke. I thought, they wake up every day not even knowing that you exist and you wake up every day thinking of them and they took your brother from you and now they've taken your peace of mind and the prayer of your childhood that you learned, the prayer of your faith, you can't even say those words anymore because of this prison of hate that you've constructed. It's easy to think of that prayer as a condition. You know, I only have, I am only forgiven if I forgive others. But it's really more of a promise that by forgiving others, we can be forgiven. Exactly. Exactly. That's the heart that our God wants us to have. Coming up, we'll talk further with Jean Bishop about her story of forgiveness and how she has been advocating for reform in the criminal justice system. I'm Whit Brisky, and this is Lawyers for Jesus Radio. To learn more about us, you can reach us at 312-726-1243 or at maukbaker.com. That's M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R.com. Thank you. 
In the wide, confusing world of law and lawyers, it's tough to find someone you can trust that shares your Christian values for legal advice and representation. You can trust Mauk and Baker, a Christian law firm based in Chicago that serves churches, ministries, businesses, and individuals with their legal matters. They seek to represent clients like you with integrity and care by using biblical principles as the foundation of their work. Additionally, their monthly newsletter highlights what's current in the religious liberty arena, keeping you informed on your right to worship, whether that's on the street, in public school, or within the walls of your church. Subscribe to their newsletter at maukbaker.com slash newsletter. That's M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R dot com slash newsletter. If you have a legal need or question and want the perspective of a local Christian attorney, contact Mauk and Baker at 312-726-1243. Call and mention Lawyers for Jesus for a free consultation. That's 312-726-1243. Welcome back to Lawyers for Jesus Radio. I'm Whit Brisky, an attorney at Mauk and Baker, a law firm based in Chicago which serves churches, ministries, businesses, and individuals in their legal needs. If you missed the first part of this show and want to listen online, go to malkbaker.com forward slash radio. Today, we've been speaking with Jean Bishop, an assistant public defender and the author of Change of Heart, her own true story of justice and forgiving her sister's killer. Do you think that uh, genuine remorse is necessary for restoration and rehabilitation? You know, that's a great question because, you know, I I thought about what remorse really means. And I think that what it means is to face the truth of what you have done and whom you have hurt and how you've hurt them. And to truly understand that, to truly take that on board into your own heart, I think can only provoke remorse. To to be remorseless is, I think, to deny, to be living in in falsehood and a lie. And I don't think genuine restoration is possible under those circumstances. Is there a way that you personally would measure uh, a change of heart or or uh, the true remorse? You know, I I can't. I'm not God. I can't judge people's hearts. You know, I can only. Um, I can only try to understand that person and, you know, the, the, the truth. I mean, in, just speaking from my own situation with the young man who killed Nancy, his name is David Bureau. And um, when I visited him and he talked about his crime, this shadow passed across his face, almost like when a cloud blocks out the sun and everything goes darker. You could see in his own face his his shame and remorse. And and another way, just as a public defender for the last 28 years, I know that there are, you know, many, you know, prisoners, especially because they are so isolated and have so many needs that they can be manipulative, that they can, you know, you know, ask kind of ask things of people in the outside world. He's never asked me for anything, not one thing. It's, he seems to just merely be grateful to for this relationship that we've built up well, the the justice system, I guess, uh, from someone looking into it, uh, I don't do criminal law, so this is, I, I'm sort of from the outside. Uh, the idea of punishment is somehow, it's, you know, deterrence in one way, keep people from doing crimes. It's a, it is a, a vengeance or punishment function to some degree, but there's also the rehabilitation 
function. And this was very popular in the 19th century, but we've sort of gotten away from it now in the last half of the 20th and early 21st. And how, how do you see the importance of that rehabilitative function? Well, I think that we see in the Gospels that you know, Jesus was about not having people be excluded, but about bringing them back, about bringing them in. And you see him, you know, touching lepers and, and you know, welcoming in tax gatherers. One of my favorite stories in the Gospels is of a man possessed by a demon. I think it's their own way of saying a man with severe mental illness that Jesus heals. And when he does that, the people in the village are just astounded and kind of afraid and, and ask Jesus to leave. And the man who he's healed wants to go with him. And Jesus said, no, go back to your community and tell how much God has done for you and the mercy shown to you. In other words, go home. And what my focus has been in the law reform that I've done since my change of heart is to focus on how can we bring people back instead of lock them away forever. Well, that's a great goal. Can you give me some specifics of how we could change what we do in our punishment system oh, yeah. in order to do that? So many. One is to stop having all these, you know, mandatory life without parole sentences, especially for juveniles. We ought to have more opportunities for parole, for the elderly and sick, for people that, um, you know, have demonstrated a completely clean prison record. You know, we need more robust use of clemency by our governor, by our president. We just need, we have such a pipeline into prison and we need to have a better way that people can earn their way out. Okay. Uh, any other, any other suggestions in terms of how, how it's done in prison? If you're, if you're there, are there better ways of doing it than we're doing it now? Oh, so much better. I mean, we need more the, the people that I know in prison, so many of my clients are in prison and they're so hungry for programs, for, you know, academic classes, for job skills, for restorative justice, for jobs, you know, all of these things um, that kind of develop human potential. We're, we're letting all this human potential, you know, waste. Um, and these are human beings that we're sending to prison, and most of them are going to get out someday. And we need to make sure that when they come out, they are healthy and strong and able to function in society. Uh, what about uh, uh, Christian outreach to prisoners? What do you think the value of that is? Oh, it's so important for, you know, so many of people in prison have never heard this word of unconditional love. I mean, one of the things that really broke my heart was when I was talking to David Biro about his parents, both of whom sadly are dead now, that when he was little on Sunday mornings, he noticed that his friends were not able to play because they were going to this place called church. And he had never been to one. He'd never been taken to church. And so he asked his mom, you know, can, okay, that sounds kind of fun. Can we do that? And she said, yeah, we'll, we'll get around to, and, <laughs> and never. And so this word that, you came from love, from the love of God. And when you die, you are going to love and you are loved all in between. And God sent his son to die for you. That's how much he loves you. That's a word he grew up never having heard. And so many are like him. So many need that word. Yes. You're listening to Lawyers for Jesus Radio. I'm Whit Brisky of Malkin Baker. And we're talking to Gene Bishop, author of Change of Heart, about restorative justice. Now, what do you say to the families who say, look, you know, this person is a dangerous person. We've got to lock him up for forever or for 
you know, a long time to prevent him from doing the same thing. First of all, for people who have lost a loved one or had a serious wrong done to them, my heart is full of compassion for them. I get the hurt and the anger. I have been there myself. So I, I'm not judging people, but I do, you know, say to them, do you change, right? You've changed from the time you were 16 years old, which is how old David Bureau was when he pulled the trigger until, you know, now when you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, and every human being is capable of that. Every human being is capable of of change and, and redemption. And sometimes there's such great reward in seeing that and nurturing that instead of having it all be frozen in that moment of horror to have this person have the potential to go out into the world and do every bit of the good that your loved one no longer can because they're not here. A way of, of honoring them by contributing to society in a way that they can't anymore. That's the hope that I find. When uh, prisoners are released, and this is not really your job uh, as a public defender, but when they are released from custody, they sometimes have very difficult times adjusting not only because uh, of their own deficiencies, but because other people really don't want to have them around, uh, don't want to have them employed, and so on. And this is this can be a very difficult problem. And from the other side of how do you allow employers to employ these people without fearing that they will be held liable for anything that this guy uh, might do? Right. You know, one of the things that our churches really, I, I hope, will do is to see that, you know, I think churches are good at sending people into prisons, like to do, you know, the, a ministry or Bible study or you know, tutoring or something. We need to get really better at welcoming people when they come out of prison, when our citizens are returning to society and they need help with so many things, with just something as simple as, you know, getting an ID and getting a job and finding a place to live and having some sort of, you know, stable support system. Um, that's so critical. And, you know, we, I think that we need to say, you know, as the Church of Jesus Christ, we are your home. You know, come to us. We want you. We are welcoming you in. Well, that could be uh, very difficult, I think, in some communities. A lot of our clients are in communities where there are a lot of ex-offenders, uh, and they're maybe a little better at that because, you know, it's such a common thing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the damage that could be done to these communities by pulling all of these young men out of them uh, really uh, has long-term effects they're absent fathers and, and absent men in those communities. So I, I really uh, appreciate the work that you're doing and, and uh, want to encourage you to keep doing it and encourage our, our uh, listeners to keep doing it and supporting it. Thank you so much. Gene, thank you for speaking with us today. How can people get a hold of your book and learn more about your advocacy and how can they join you? Um, my website is jeanbishop.info. That's J-E-A-N-N-E-B-I-S-H-O-P dot I-N-F-O. The, the book is available on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, you know, any place you can buy books uh, through my publisher, Westminster John Knox, which is part of the Presbyterian Publishing. Um, and on my website, my uh, email address and, and phone are there. So please, you know, be in touch with me. 
If you have a legal need or a question and want the perspective of a local Christian attorney, contact us at Malkin Baker. You can reach us at 312-726-1243 or at malkbaker.com. That's M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R.com. Visit our website and subscribe to our Religious Liberty newsletter with legal updates or call us and mention Lawyers for Jesus Radio for a free consultation. Thanks for listening. I'm Whit Brisky, attorney at Malkin Baker, and this is Lawyers for Jesus Radio. Somebody, yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody.